So ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome you to uh, Startup World Cup and Summit podcast. Today with a special guest, Bill Reichert from California. Bill is a global jury member of Startup World Cup, a event that takes place every year in the Czech Republic as well, because we are proud to host European finale. Bill is a partner in Pegasus Technology Ventures. He's a managing director of Garage Technology Ventures. He's also a lecturer in the University of Berkeley. He's author uh, of a book, Getting to Wow, which covers secrets of pitching. <laughs> We would get to it later on during the conversation. Uh, he is also a Prague enthusiast. enthusiast so for those who love Prague as we do, uh, this is a connection point. Uh, welcome, Bill. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Oh, my, my, my great pleasure to be here and thank you very much for reaching out. <laughs> right. Bill, when I, when I was getting through your background, I think one interesting thing uh, that hit me was the mix of fields you've studied. Because you've studied MBA in economy and finance in Stanford and you mixed it with Harvard history of science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the second degree is especially inspiring to me because in history of science department, mm -hmm. you, they claim that they would advance your understanding of science, technology, and medicine in their historical and social contexts, mm -hmm. which is, I think when I, when I was digging into how this fits into your Uh, current life, I think you could not have chosen better university because <laughs> you, you were studying about these uh, phenomenons of social change and now you are actually investing into them as well because startups are here for actually filling the voids in the market. They're trying to address the needs of customers that are not addressed by the corporates and they are trying to find these, these niches and, and explore them, right? Mm -hmm. Bill, can you tell me a little bit about where do you see the whole startup ecosystem in terms of human history? <laughs> wow, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, absolutely. So, you know, sort of at the... Um, at the core of the study of the history of science mm -hmm. is this concept that was um, made famous by an author named Thomas Kuhn, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Mm -hmm. um, and one of his, his big point is that sort of in every domain, there is an established paradigm. And in order to crack that paradigm, in order to make progress, you need these radicals at the edge who come in and say, hey, you know, that doesn't work anymore. That's not sufficient. That doesn't explain the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just too hard to explain the universe in terms of the earth being at the center and everything else, you know, uh, revolving around it. Um, and so you needed a check to come along and explain, <laughs> no, no, it's much easier to explain the universe if you put the sun at the center and you have the earth moving around it. So thank you very much, um, Copernicus. But in any case, um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it evolves 
it evolves. I'm, I'm right, right? Copernicus was Czech, wasn't he? Uh, I don't think he was Czech, actually. Oh, really? Oh, no. <laughs> Shame on me. I should, you know, fire my professors, but... <laughs> I, I think we will do okay. the background check of yeah. Copernicus. But, but I do... Okay. But I, but, I think, <laughs> but I think he spent some time in the country. Ah, uh, that may have been it. Okay. So maybe he was... Maybe it was the he was, um, he, he the, was the, the king of Bohemia who sponsored him or something. <laughs> right, right. I think so. He, he was chairman. Uh, so it's. Ah, uh, I, I mean, if you look gene-wise at the Czech inhabitants, we are Germans. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, so, painful, painful for part of the listeners right now, but but that's true. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Well, you, you know, take credit, take credit anyway. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the point, yeah, without getting way off, you know, without getting way off topic, right? Um, the, you know, the point being that it is, it is the sort of, it's the natural homeostasis of, of organizations to settle into a paradigm that works well enough. And, and so uh, the, the challenge for innovators is to, you know, crack that paradigm. Uh, and, and, and so you've got a choice. You can go straight at it, in, you know, and, and try to you know, disrupt it directly. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can find, or you can, you know, find, find a way around and sort of work your way in from the outside, working from, you know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, uh, beachheads that are, that are sort of niches Mm-hmm. where you can establish, you know, sort of an initial success and then eventually work your way in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, you see, you see this happening in all these different in compute paradigms and microprocessor and semiconductor paradigms. Um, and then in networking paradigms and communications paradigms, mm-hmm. you had all, you know, all these paradigms that, that, that you know, had to be ra- radicalized um, by, by innovators and eventually hospitality paradigms and taxi cab paradigms and now interesting question educational paradigms um, you know how is covid going to is covid going to dramatically affect sort of the standard educational paradigm um, you know you've got business meeting paradigms that are being shifted by covid there are a lot of things that are being shifted you know that are there's sort of opening up um, established paradigms to shifts. And so, you know, sort of that concept of paradigm shifting and innovators needing to, you know, it, you know that the paradigm is going to resist the shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, that's Thomas Kuhn's big point. And, and so as an entrepreneur, you've got to figure out how do you overcome that resistance? Right. And, you know, frequently the model um, is, you know, you, you do a flanking maneuver. You don't go straight at it. Mm-hmm. You don't, you know, Uber did not go at, right at the taxicab business, right? Um, Uber started over here at the limousine business mm-hmm. um, and sort of edged its way in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Airbnb didn't go after the hotel business. Um, it started in the sort of couch surfing corner, you know, that's true. Who's, you know, how big can couch, how big can couch surfing be, right? I mean, we um, can so another example from Facebook, right? That started as a network to mingle among univers- university members, and and look what happened later on. 
today when the dust settles. I think we have social media that are dramatically changing societies all around the world. We could have seen it in American elections. Mm-hmm. How big of a trench can be dig when two groups are sort of they're sort of uh, self-assured by their own truth. Yeah. And and we are uh, heavily surprised how truth can be relative and how alternative theories as, as you as yeah. as you earlier referenced the heliocentrism. We mm-hmm. are now in times when mm-hmm. there's flat earthism again so the question <laughs> is my next question is when the dust yeah. settles right I mean, yeah the question rather is does the dust settled on media already do you think it's settled or it needs to be settled further because the thing is the, the way how the social media behaves currently is uh actually the way that they are not responsible for the content that is exposed to but they are skimming all the money from the game right um and my question is like this is this an innovation or is this an abbreviation yeah it's well i mean i think it's it's an evolution Mm. of an ecosystem that um you know is i wouldn't say it's predictable but it's totally consistent with evolution right so you have this I, you know, you have this, this sort of seed of the social media that starts out as being sort of interesting, cute, you know, sort of um, uh, fun, whatever. And you have a certain amount of early adopter community that, that gravitates toward it and makes it a reasonably consistent community. But as it evolves, it diffuses, right? And and with the diffusion, you get all sorts of different, you know, sub ecosystems that evolve. And so, you know, nature is a very interesting combination of, 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 of organization and entropy, right? So, so what you're seeing in, in, in social media, there's this organic sort of organization that gets created the way you know plants and animals get created from you know water and dust, right? Um, but then, as you have this evolution of the ecosystem, you get all sorts of different plants and animals, mm-hmm. um, and you know they evolve into their own separate ecosystems. Some of which are antithetical to to others, uh, and and so you have this challenge, this challenge of of or you know, by ecosystems, biological ecosystems, always tending toward a type of chaos, always tending toward disorganization, um, and you know, so what are the forces that create organization? So you know, at one point, Facebook was an organizing principle, you know, pulling together people of somewhat similar um, mindsets, um, but then as it grew and evolved. It became a you know disorganizing principle. It became a chaotic um, mm-hmm. organization, which did not, you know, you would the hope the theory was it would be unifying. I think Zuckerberg, le, you know, legitimately saw it as a unifying platform to bring us all together, and unfortunately, 
it just doesn't work that way, right? And once you get to a certain level of scale mm-hmm. where the ecosystem is no longer homogeneous, then it becomes chaotic and then it becomes disorganizing, not organizing. Hmm. So, hmm. I, you know, I, it's a really, really interesting question. What can be an organizing vehicle for bringing us together? Um, you know, yes. obviously, historically, mm-hmm. you know, we got together, you know, initially as tribes, tribes like <laughs> you know, and then as and then as nation states and then as countries and mm-hmm. at some mo- at some modest level, we've got into multinational treaty organizations. Um, and unfortunately, it's felt as though to some extent that's mm-hmm. decaying. Um, and and so is it decaying? You know, to some extent, it's decaying from the inside as opposed to from the outside, um, which is, that's a much larger question. Um, you know, was the, so the world in some level was more organized when we had, you know, sort of these polarities, which kept, you know, which kept the, the sub, you know, the sub the, the, the nation state level of organization mm-hmm. sort of more, more coherent. Now that we don't have the same level of polarity, the nation states are free floating and it's you know, perfectly reasonable for them to go off spinning off into a more disorganized framework. Right. So that's not, that's, not a very optimistic yeah. way of looking at it, I, I fear. Because <laughs> I don't want, you know, it's not like I'm hoping there will be some alien you know, race that comes from outer space and organizes us. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why yeah. I asked the question here was, yes. <laughs> was, it was because I have seen recently the social dilemma. I mean, who, who, who hasn't? Uh, the film of Jeff Orlovsky, I think it had a, a tremendous impact on, on the tech scene all around the world. And the reason why I'm asking is we have seen elections now in the United States. We, and previously we have seen elections in Europe that, that are, you know, we see such divisions between uh, uh, among the society groups, I would say, the bubbles, we call it bubbles, and, and they, each of the bubble is so, sort of like self-proclaimed bubble that is, mm-hmm. that is assured of its own truth and of, of the version of its own truth. And this is the reason why I, I was asking about the flat earthist movements, because, yeah. you know, this is what is happening now in this innovation. So my question was, because you yeah. have seen dozens years of innovations in the Silicon Valley, which mm-hmm. is the place where it all happens, is where do you see this media future in, in yeah. the next 10 years? Because yeah. it is now interesting to me whether there will be some sort of truth verification process, whether we yeah. can whether we can technologically tackle the thing or yeah. whether we would need like a huge teams of people authenticating all the content around earth and and yeah. verifying whether it's true or not and yeah. it leads to a situation where you can imagine having this 25 years old people that will be actually saying that no this is not bill record he 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 wouldn't say this it's like like yeah. declare this yeah. untruth mm-hmm. so you know I am yeah. actually thinking yeah, how to tackle the problem. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I mean, yeah. And I, um, <clears throat> I you know, I, I think, you know, I think about this a lot. We, we talk about this a lot. 
Um, you know, and there is this really, you know, interesting philosophical question, what is truth, right? I mean, so we can, so we can have a philosophical, philosophical discussion about mm -hmm. facts um, and, 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 you know, but the relationship between facts and truth is an interesting question, right? Because, uh, you know, so the, the, the theory that interconnects facts is, you know, by everybody who ad adopts that theory, that theory is truth. Um, to the extent that I believe that this theory interconnects all these facts, then, mm. um, you know, then I believe this theory to be true. Uh, and it is, you know, it's a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a uh, sort of philosophically immature point of view to say, well, I can pick whatever truth I want because, you know, I can create a theory that explains these facts, you know, whether it's the, you know, theory of evolution um, or heliocentricity or, um, you know, Trump versus Biden. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, that's the unfortunate, you know, reality that we have. And so the, the issue that you know we're all struggling with is is then this issue of trust, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is even more ethereal, right? <laughs> it's even you know less specific than facts or truth. Then you've got trust, and it, there was and 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 you know throughout the world, uh, you know, trust is declining. I mean mm -hmm. that just there's no longer consensus around trust. One of the things that comes up in these elections is that way back in the 60s, as crazy as the 60s were, you know, the vast majority of Americans trusted government. Mm -hmm. um, and now nobody trusts government, you know, you know, even yeah. nobody trusts government, <laughs> right? I mean, People it's just- believing in Pizzagate, right? And, and in deep state and, and many other alternative theories. Uh, it right. happens all around the world. So right. we, we probably would not answer the question where this is all heading, but it also leads me to a point where I think the discussion can get more uh, of, a, of a learning lesson to our local ecosystem in uh -huh. the Central Europe where you can see many entrepreneurs repeating the same mistakes all around like the process. Yeah. Uh, me, I am in a venture vehicle, Adventures, and we see about a thousand business plans per year. You, Bill, are in two venture vehicles. And by doing simple math, you are living in, uh, in a beautiful California. Uh, so you must see much more than I am. So what are the what are the lessons that can be taught? What is the most important one? Is it still the same? Because in, in 96, I think, no, in 06, you gave a nice interview in Social Tech website. And you said, quoting, focusing, focusing on getting real customers from the day you start. This is, this is the core what you need to do. Too many entrepreneurs get diverted, focusing on the technology or the business plan or raising capital. These are all important, but nothing is more important than creating customers mm -hmm. and creating values. And you also said, I only invest in companies that even a complete idiot can run. <laughs> right, 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 so, right. Um, right. You, I mean, know, it, it age, age, you know, you know, all the clients, it actually didn't age. 
No, I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's still my frame of reference. And, and, and so, right. So the, um, the, the comment about a complete idiot that actually I, I stole that. And I, I think I, I cited the source whenever I, whenever I was interviewed, um, but it was from a very, very famous fund manager long ago and far away, a guy who started and ran a fund called the Magellan Fund. And, um, and his point, his point was, and, and which, I, which I resonate with tremendously still, still many, many, many years later, which is that all too often you get entrepreneurs who are so excited about being clever um, you know, they want, they want people to appreciate their cleverness in sort of the creation of some new business model or new business or new technology or new product. And it's really about, it's really about their ego, about sort of demonstrating how clever and innovative and inventive and brilliant and all that sort of thing they are. And, and cleverness, you know, can be, can be helpful. It can help you solve problems. But at the end of the day, what you're looking for is not clever. You're looking for obvious. You're looking for, you know, a, a something where it is obvious that people are going to love this. Hmm. Um, now, that's not always true. It's not always true, right? And so you take something like, you take something like um, an Airbnb. You know, Airbnb is not at all obvious. And, and, you know, because who's going to sleep on some stranger's couch and then who's going to let a stranger sleep on their couch, right? I mean, it's, you know, in sort of the earliest, the earliest sort of framing of it. But interestingly, interestingly, to go back to our previous theme, um, the, the key to Airbnb success, actually, it's not technology. It's, it's the key to Airbnb success is trust. Hmm. And that's what enables Airbnb to be successful. And that's what they had to crack. That was the nut they had to crack. They had to create a, they had to create a, a, a mini universe of trust. So the, obviously the hosts have to trust the guests, the guests have to trust the hosts. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, otherwise, you know, it, it's not going to happen. And so the, the entire mechanism of Airbnb is one of creating trust. So enforcing standards, you know, creating this, this, you know, this gamification of rating guests and rating hosts. And, you know, all of that was necessary to create trust. I mean, this goes back way back earlier, way, way, way back, right? But eBay, that was the problem with eBay. That was the key to eBay success. How do you create trust you know, between buyer and seller? Hmm. It was the key to Facebook's success. So what was, what, was, what was the key to Facebook's success? They were not the first social media site. You know, they were, they were I mean, there was, there was no technology there to speak of really, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the key to Facebook success? The key to Facebook success was when you went on Facebook, you knew that the other person was who they said they were. And mm -hmm. that was the problem with social media up until Facebook. So what Facebook did from day one is they said, look, we're not gonna let you in unless you have a .edu address at one of these three universities, right? And then, you know, other universities, other universities. 
but we're going to be really, really, really rigid about you being exactly who you say you are. Uh, and, you know, over time, that has, dis that has somewhat, um, uh, you know, diffused. It's mm -hmm. a little bit harder now to trust Facebook. But that's what differentiated them at the beginning. Right. And that's what enabled them to take off was actually not technology, not business model. It was, it was trust. Hmm. So, so it's, you know, it's it, it just because we brought this up before, um, I just thought it was important to emphasize if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an entrepreneur, nobody teaches trust, right? I mean, nobody, you know, there's no sort of, you know, minimum trustable product, right? <laughs> that's, um, <laughs> But, um, you know, it's, but, but, you know, something that I've realized over the years is this whole thing about moving, moving sort of away from an engineer technology driven innovation concept to a trust and customer value creation hmm. concept hmm. is, is, is something of a paradigm shift in the entrepreneurship ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, innovation was all about technology, right? I mean, it was just about coming up with the next better technology. Right, right. You, right. Know, you know, a faster chip, a faster network, a faster, um, you know, more storage, cheaper computer, you know, Moore's Law, a color screen, whatever, right? I mean, um, it was about it was about incrementing around technology, uh, and that is a way that is a way to be successful. But uh, but in a in a world now which has evolved from a IT product technology universe, which was the core of Silicon Valley, and was the core of sort of the the venture capital, you know, innovation ecosystem um, to now, what we see is most successful businesses are not really technology businesses. Hmm. They are business model businesses, hmm. right? I mean, you know, I mean, TikTok, yeah, there's some technology there, but, but it's really about, you know, creating this um, this ecosystem mm -hmm. that uh, you know that people want to participate in, mm -hmm. um, you know, again, as I said, Uber and Airbnb and Facebook and Netflix—they're not really technology companies. Mm -hmm. Now they all take advantage of the state-of-the-art technology, and state-of-the-art technology becomes important levers for them to execute on a business model. But the business model is fundamentally about value creation for customers, enabling people to do something that it was not easy to do before that they actually want to do, that is actually either valuable or in the case of, uh, you know, TikTok or even Facebook is, 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 is fun, entertaining, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so, yeah, to, uh, <laughs> to, to go back, the fundamental principles are the same. The number one thing that we look for as a venture capital firm, the number one thing that you've got to deliver as an entrepreneur is customer value. Mm -hmm. So 
It's not about your passion. It's not about your team. It's not about your technology. It's not about your product. It's about your compelling value proposition. Yeah. That's what's, you know, that's what creates big companies is value proposition. Completely with you. You need to talk to your customer and you need to do it from not only from day one, you should do it from thought one. Right. This is a basic mistake of entrepreneurs that we see around us that they are thinking starting to do this from day one, but they define day one uh, incorrectly because the day one is the day you see the idea in your head. And from that moment on, you should talk about that with people, with prospective customers. You should talk about that with potential competitors or competitors. You should talk about that with people that have been through the fire of, uh, you know, bringing products to the market and you should eventually create some sort of list of potential customers before you bring the MVP. So you should be able in theory to sell the product before there is any product, which is an issue in our geography still. Uh, But I believe that this can be cracked by us repeating the same mantra all over. So that's why I'm Mm -hmm. repeating the same mantra all over. (laughs) Okay, let's keep pounding that mantra. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. I appreciate it. Yeah. The products or the the services we've referenced in our conversation were mostly B2C-ish. On the other hand, many products and and many startups in our geography are rather B2B or B2B2B or B2B2C. There is another B in the link because I think it's much more uh, money demanding to create anything B2C nowadays because you need to have you know, you need to convert many customers and it, it is yeah. not a cheap process. But if you have <laughs> a B2B product, you can somehow cheat the process around. <laughs> and you, you don't need to use, you know, such vast uh, resources to sort of uh, be there on social networks and bid your money. So in Europe, we mm-hmm. see many B2B products and many B2B startups that maybe, right. you know, the trust is still an element, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's a different game, although it's still about people, right? And, uh, yeah. And it's still about the customer. So do you see any uh, repeated mistake when you look at this B2B segment? And I know that this is like, it's not a B2B segment. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Too many verticals. But do you see any like repeated mistake in B2B? attitude absolutely yeah 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 absolutely absolutely no question about it i mean and and no your point is a good one we tend to talk a lot about consumer oriented products because those are the ones that are the most famous right and and so when you're having conversations about innovation entrepreneurship venture capital you know the references tend to be popular products and popular products tend to be consumer and you know enterprise enterprise software you know, it's, 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 it's harder to sort of, you know, get your head around what's the key, right? So what was the key to Palantir's success, right? I mean, that's a little more opaque than, (laughs) than talking about, than talking about Airbnb, you know, for example, but, and, and our reality is, is, you know, overwhelmingly we invest in, you know, B2B, types of companies, not in consumer companies, 
um, you know, for, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, one of which is your point about how tough it is to crack the consumer market, you know, at scale, at the scale that you need to, right? Um, but on the enterprise side, uh, your point is fair, which is to say that, uh, you know, you can, you can create a, 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 a reasonable business um, with relatively fewer customers on the enterprise side or on the B2B side. Um, but it is, you know, equally challenging, although in different ways. But in, in, in our experience, the, um, you know, some key mistakes that entrepreneurs make uh, on, the, on the B2B side or, you know, the flip side, things that you have to make sure you do right on the B2B side are that, you know, number one, uh, you know, number one is, is, is underestimating how hard it is to get an enterprise sale. So the, you know, what happens with almost every B2B company uh, startup is through their network and through some, you know, pounding on doors or whatever, they do manage to get three or four or five initial customers, you know, some sort of beta proof of concept, whatever it is. And they think, whoa, yeah, you know, it only took us, it only took us, you know, four weeks to convince these guys to do a beta test of our software. Um, so, boy, let's see, we put that in our model, right? Okay, let's be conservative. Let's say, on average, it's going to take eight weeks, right? That's really conservative. And so, let's see, if we start in January, and then we call on, and da -da 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 -da, you do the math, and, you know, by the end of 2020, by the end of 2022, we should be a $500 million company. Piece of cake, right? I mean, <laughs> the math just gets you know, crazy on an Excel spreadsheet because it's so easy. It's so easy to crank down your assumptions and still get these outrageous outcomes thanks to the beauty of, of math, right? Um, and so almost every entrepreneur underestimates how hard it's going to be to scale on the B2B side. Because uh, what's happened is you went out there and you talked to a bunch of people and you obviously gravitated toward the relatively few who were somewhat interested in what you were doing. And, you know, so you have to scale that. And that can be extremely expensive and time consuming to scale finding those relatively few among, among the large audience, because it's really expensive calling on enterprises. So generally, entrepreneurs have no idea what it's going to take to scale a B2B business in terms of the sales cycle, the sales process. And then depending upon the, the, the business, the sales process is frequently just crazy complex because you've got the buyer, you've got the user, you've got the CFO, you've got the CEO, you've got the business unit. I mean, there are all these players that frequently you have to engage in order to be successful in B2B. So, you know, one of the tricks that, that some of the most successful B2B players um, implemented was, you know, similar to what I was talking about before, this beachhead strategy. Is there a way you can get a business unit or even, you know, can you get an individual marketeer to use your technology 
um, and make that a beachhead into the organization. Uh, so if, if your technology requires corporate adoption, oh, that's, you know, that's gonna be really, really hard. And, and so, but if, it, if, if you know, some enthusiast somewhere in one of the divisions can use your technology and get value from it, and then you know, share it with their co-colleagues in other divisions or in the department, whatever, that can be a much better way to sort of land and expand inside of an organization. So, so you know, one of the important lessons learned around this whole challenge of the sales cycle is, is figure, out, figure out a business model that enables you to prove your value inside the walls of the organization and then enables you to expand from there rather than having to do a corporate adoption model. You know, so that's a, you know, that's a big lesson on, on, on the, the enterprise side. Mm -hmm. you know, the other challenge, again, it depends a lot on the model, but um, I, you know, the, the big thing in sort of the, the new standard enterprise software model is software as a service, right? It's a subscription model, not a license model. <clears throat> and, you know, so every, uh, every software entrepreneur on the planet has jumped on this model without paying attention to the sort of two critical ends of the SaaS model. At the front end of a SaaS model, you've got the, the, the challenge of onboarding. Um, so, you know, lots of, you know, pretty much, well, lots of enterprise software, it's not as though you can download it and use it, right? <laughs> pretty much most enterprise software, you know, you need some form of onboarding, <clears throat> you know, some form of integration with current systems or, you know, creation of, you know, frameworks or models that fit your organization. So there's this onboarding thing. And when you're an early stage entrepreneur, you know, the team, the whole team, onboards the first few customers, right? And that's, and you're learning and it's great. And the customer is sort of loving your energy and your innovation and that's good, but that's not scalable. <laughs> that is not scalable, right? Um, and so you've got to figure out a way to, to ideally, you know, compress that onboarding into a do-it-yourself model or in an, into an automated model or a, a very low touch model but that kills a lot of B2B companies is the, is the scale of the onboarding challenge. Mm. Now, you know, Palantir turned that flaw into a feature. <laughs> what Palantir did was because they were, they, you know, they landed these relatively price insensitive big customers is they charged up the wazoo for the onboarding. And so, you know, Palantir is a, you know, enterprise software company, but it was really a consulting firm for most of its most of its life, because the product was sort of the end of a consulting engagement as opposed to the beginning of an implementation. Mm -hmm. So onboarding is really super critical at the front end. The back end of enterprise is the upsell, right? It's well, it's the renewal and the upsell process. And again, most early stage companies they think got them, they're subscribing, they're paying, yay, you know, they, you know, they're going to love it. And 
of course, they'll keep going and going and going because our software is so good, right? But unless you have a dedicated resource associated with renewing those customers, keeping them happy, and then upselling them over time, you know, you got this person in the marketing department who's using your software, how do you get the whole marketing department? You know, it's not necessarily going to happen organically. God bless, sometimes it does. But you need resource to make that happen. And so you look at most every enterprise software financial projection, and it has these huge flaws in it, right? So it has the sales cycle is too short for mm -hmm. to be realistic. It has virtually no expenditure for onboarding. It assumes everybody's going to renew, and it assumes that everybody's going to expand and upsell. And so you have this compounding of these faulty assumptions that, you know, creates this delusion that you're going to have this unicorn in three or four years because that's what the Excel spreadsheet told me, right? And how, how can my Excel spreadsheet be wrong? So, yeah, so yeah, lots and lots of complexity in scaling an enterprise software company or a B2B company. Um, that entrepreneurs, you know, gloss over way too, way too quickly. Yeah, I think majority of the startups that we see locally and even in Europe is B2B. So that's why I'm glad that you have shared the whole thing, <clears throat> especially yeah. from a software as a service model, because I think, and you are quite correct, this is a mantra to all the venture capital firms. We are looking for RR in any form, right? Monthly, mm -hmm. right? Yearly recurring revenue, right? And and this is you know this is all around uh, the the scene now, and and I don't guess it would change uh, in mm -hmm. four months or years. But mm -hmm. there is one thing, and and you you actually tapped into it. You said uh, Excel spreadsheet easily tells me that this is a unicorn. My idea is a unicorn, but it might not be super wrong not to have this unicorn, maybe to have uh, one tenth of a unicorn, build a successful business that you Absolutely. are much e much more uh, easy and you might go public, let's say in in UK, you might not run into a full scale IPO in, uh, in States. Mm -hmm. And it's still a decent business plan. And, and I think not so many entrepreneurs are focusing on that, that even a smaller business in terms of value in hundreds of millions of, uh, let's say, euros or American dollars is still, uh, you know, it, it's still an achievement. And so not every company needs to be this unicorn. Not every company needs to have this, like, you know, billions of, of, of value. And this is another aspect. And, and right. some of the VCs are, are already uh, recognizing this and they are working in their, in their own spreadsheets, in their own return of investment models. They're already working with that uh, in their minds, I believe. Mm -hmm. Also, I believe that producing such companies creates this snowball effect because you, you, can, you cannot easily create many unicorns in here in the Czech Republic. I know we have Avast, we have Muse, eventually, we have a mm -hmm. couple more, but mm -hmm. it, if I can count it, I would probably, <laughs> even if I would 
uh, include potential unicorns, I would probably end up with having less than 10 companies. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely, that's true. And, mm. <clears throat> you know, the, 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 so the, real, the reality uh, for entrepreneurs is you've got to be a $1 million company before you're a $10 million company before you're a $50 million company, before you're $100 million, right? So, so yes, we want you to have the vision hmm. that you could scale, but even more important, we want to see that it is obvious that you're, you can be a $10 million company. Um, so if it's obvious you could be a $10 million company, then then it's more likely you can scale after that. Mm -hmm. If it's going to be really hard for you to get to $10 million on a reasonable amount of capital, then, uh, you know, as big as your vision is, as, you know, as amazing as your aspirations to make a dent in the universe are, if we can't see our way to a $1 million and a $10 million company, then it's going to be really hard for us to believe that you're ever going to fulfill this vision yeah. Um, and, you know, and so it all comes back to trust, right? <laughs> do we, as the investors, do we trust you as the entrepreneurs to be able to execute? And walking, you know, and that, yeah, walking through the stages, yeah. you just mentioned from 1 million to 10 million, from 10 mm -hmm. million to more, yeah. you, you would probably need a few and that few is money and people. And I think we could also focus on people and how they need to evolve in order to sort of keep up the pace with their own startup because sometimes it happens that for example if you want to try to scale up a service from the czech republic let's say it's b2b service you would need a class salesforce and frankly you cannot find many skilled people in here you you just need to go and grab who's the best at the market. So it comes down to HR actually sometimes. Mm -hmm. You need to get these resources. In, mm -hmm. I was told in Silicon Valley, I think we discussed that with Marvin Leal, that mm -hmm. sometimes salespeople are hired according to the list of contacts they have. Once they deplete their contacts, they're gone, yeah. go fishing to another company. And, yeah. and basically this is it. So they sort of yeah. rotate around the, the scene. Yeah. which is something that we don't have in here. And I think the founders should realize that having such a salesperson is a, is a blessing <laughs> and, and is a must-have in a certain yeah. sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, it is one of the amazing things about Silicon Valley and the venture world, broadly speaking, how little honor we give to sales. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that, <clears throat> you know, we talk about revenues and we talk about finding salespeople, you know, as if finding salespeople is, you know, like finding the best apple on a tree or something. I, I mean, it's just, it's yep. not it's like they're commodities that, you know, you just got to make sure there's not a worm in it, right? And it's, you know, it's not, it's just not fair. I mean, it's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that first of all, in all of our cultures, mm. we disparage sales, right? I mean, no one, no one ever in, you know, in, in third grade, you walk in and you ask the kids, what do they want to be when they grow up? 
You know, you've never, no kid has said, I want to be a salesman, right? <laughs> that never happens, right? How can that possibly be when you think about it? Because that's, you know, that makes the world go round. And so we just, as, a, as every culture, we disparage sales. And even, you know, my, my, my dear friend, Steve Blank, and, you know, the whole lean startup thing, they don't talk about sales at all. They talk about customer discovery and customer development and you know business development and blah product market fit. <laughs> they don't talk about sales, you know. I mean, because and you know, and I, I I complained to Steve about this, and he said, yeah, you know, but it's you want we want to be customer focused, not sales focused, right? 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 Bill, come on. And so you know, okay, sort of fair, but there are people you need to hire and develop who do sales. And you need to arm those people with everything they need to be successful doing sales. You cannot just assume, which is you know, sort of the classic you know, Silicon Valley engineer entrepreneur who comes to us and says, okay, I got this great technology and we're gonna build this great product. Now all I have to do is, is get you to give me some money so I can hire some of those sales guys and, you know, and they could go sell it. Right. Right. And, you know, and God bless, I'm not going to let the sales guys talk to my engineers, you know, we're going to have them, you know, keep them separate with their gold chains and their BMWs and their cologne and just, just don't let them near my engineering team. Right. So it's just this classic culture sort of craziness that we disparage sales. So, you know, so I've got a, as you can tell, I feel strongly about this. And it was, it was, it was the best thing that ever happened to me when my second, in my second company, um, I, it was actually, my second company was actually a restart. So I was brought in with a buddy of mine to restart a company that was failing. Oh, the learning uh, company, right? The learning company, right. <laughs> the learning company. And so <clears throat> my buddy and I, we walk in and, and, you know, basically we fire everybody <laughs> and, and, you know, to, we're going to restart this thing. Right. And, um, and we look around and we had fired the sales guy who was this, you know, he would sit in his office and wait for the phone to ring. And it was like, <laughs> okay, we're going to put that guy out of his misery. So we fire the sales guy and then I, I look at my buddy and say, okay, you know, I guess we got to go hire a sales guy. <laughs> and my buddy says, no, Bill, why don't you do it? Hey, me, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Stanford MBA. I'm not a sales guy, right? <laughs> and hey, come on, Bill, come on, go do it. So, I mean, it was the best thing that I ever did in my life uh -huh. was, you know, you know, put together a quota, carry a bag and go all over the United States talking to all of our clients and customers and figuring out how to sell, figuring out how to sell. Um, and it was, it was, it was great. And I, you know, so I have this really strong bias against entrepreneurs who disparage sales. Only for the record, Bill yes. managed to take the company public for $60 million in 1992. <laughs> so imagine this was a completely different sum of money. Uh, back then. <laughs> Yeah, that was a big deal. That was a big deal back then. <laughs> it wasn't later on the company was sold to Mattel, I believe, for 3.6 billion. 
Right, so exactly. You see, did actually uh, created a tremendous value, and when Mattel have seen it, then you know, <laughs> let this happen. So uh, sometimes I believe that you still have to scratch your head not to be there for a longer period and not to be. <clears> there. <throat> yeah, but still, it yeah. comes back to my thought of you know, you don't need to build unicorns. You you, you only and and I, I said only yeah. in sort of like at the ball because uh, you only need to build a multi, multi-million or, or hundreds yeah. million worth of a company. So, well, so I'm going to push back you on this a little bit, Vaclav, which is to say, <clears throat> you know, we, we don't want to fund entrepreneurs whose attitude is, well, I only have to get to $10 million, right? I mean, that's, you know, so I get, I get your point. Your yeah. point is if I can build a $10 million company, that could be a phenomenal success. I mean, that could be a phenomenal success. But having said that, you know, there is this, um, you know, and it's, it's a bias. It is a bias that, that your potential, your potential is always going to be something underneath your ambition, hmm. um, you know? And so if your ambition is this, your potential is gonna be something below that. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly delighted. And this is why as a VC, my attitude is, I love the idea of investing in a company where getting to 10 million is obvious and the potential is there to get to a hundred million. Um, and I, you know, it may not, I may or may not believe that we're ever going to get to a hundred million and that's okay. But if I, you know, if it's obvious that they can get to 10 million, that's a win, 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 you know, everybody wins mm-hmm. um, if they get to 10 million and that's great. But I still want, I still want the team to have the ambition to build an even bigger company. So, uh, you know, and so that is, that is kind of a Silicon Valley VC bias um, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we won't you know be delighted if the if <clears throat> you know three or four years later it's a ten million dollar company and they're cash flow positive and that's great um, that's fine but if an entrepreneur were to come to me and say I can build a ten million dollar company um, I'd say God bless go do it you know I mean <laughs> but the yeah. challenge is it's going to be really hard for a VC to fund that company if the ambition is $10 million. So Mm. that's what, you know, I'm not asking entrepreneurs to lie. I'm not saying, you know, make up and, you know, make up this ambition, but, you know, and really all you want to do is this, Um, you know, I don't want you to lie, uh, but I am hoping, I'm hoping that you see 10 million is just the first step or maybe it's the second step, but you see it as a step to something that can be bigger. It's not your ultimate ambition. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, I just want to clarify that. Mm-hmm. I want to clarify that a little. And the, but I love the idea that with a little bit of capital and some efficiency in a business model, we could build a company that's break even or cash flow positive at 10 million. That gives us all sorts of degrees of freedom to go, you know, sort of extend that into something that could be even bigger. 
And then if that entrepreneur at that point, that entrepreneur may say, you know, I was, I, I'm kind of a zero to 10 million entrepreneur. I'm not, you know, 10 million to hundred million entrepreneur. I'm fine if, if you can find the person who can scale this globally, you know, I don't know how to scale this globally. Um, so I'm fine. Let's go figure out how to scale it globally and I'll take a board role or whatever I'll do. That's okay too. That's okay too. Um, so you don't have to be the one who's on the hook to get it from 10 million to 100 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would prefer that you could grow with the company in terms of, but you know, your skills and your ambitions and your mindset. But I certainly understand if your reality is, boy, you know, I've never done this international scaling before. Let's bring on someone who's done the international scaling. You know, that's fine. That's great. No, true. And my point was rather that it's a decent outcome, you know, but from address some of your worries there, I think (laughs) we are also potentially hoping for unicorns in here, but the sums invested in Europe into project are usually tenfold lower. So let's say that in in the United States, you usually get a hundred thousand euros, you know, in seed stage, you get 500,000 and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the tickets are tenfold higher in in Silicon Valley. So this is actually linked to the expectations partially. Yeah. But also I believe that having this mindset of, you know, uh, disrupting the, the market, it needs to have an ambition and potential. I'm with you. Sometimes CEOs are being overgrown by their own companies and they are being changed. Like we have seen it in the Czech Republic, I believe in Social Bakers company where its founder, Jan Rejab, he stepped down and he he actually offered his seat to his successor who eventually sold the company. And I think it, it happened a month ago, if I remember. Oh. Uh-huh. So it happens also yeah. locally. and there is a justification in this like you know there might be a better person and and it's not the worst thing that can happen to your business that you know somebody that knows how to actually you know bring it further uh and closer to exit is there so my question would be how do you suggest to find such people and i am trying to get back to our sales guy conversation yeah 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 well, what yeah. Do you recommend uh, the CE startup to do. Yeah. So, well, specifically on the sales side, specifically, um, I think there are two types that you want to go bring into the organization. Hmm. So, so one type is is the person who understands sales as a machine. So, you know, a lot of people have been brought up through sales as salespeople who sort of think of it as, okay, I got a quota, I got to make so many calls, I got to, they, you know, there's a sales process, but, but there are some people who have had enough experience or at least enough training and understanding to see that the whole point of marketing and sales is to create a repeatable, scalable process. And that's, you know, some form of a machine 
where you can sort of, you put some dollars in at this end and it generates some leads and you qualify leads and you have a funnel and it turns into dollars at this end and then upscale and all of that. So there are people who, who have been through that a few times who at least who get this idea that sales is all about creating a repeatable scalable engine. So having someone with that mindset and discipline, it's not just about, you know, sort of just whacking a bunch of people on the head to hit their quota. Um, it's about, you know, creating a machine, instrumenting every piece of the machine, monitoring your metrics, continuously adjusting the mechanism of the machine. So you need that mentality. And that mentality is, I mean, it's, it's a marketing and sales sort of integrated mentality. Far too often, for a whole bunch of strange historical reasons, the marketing department has had this sort of different mandate and mindset than the sales department. Um, and, you know, and it's, it, is, it is one integrated machine and far too many people think marketing is different than sales. It's one integrated machine. You need someone who understands the, how important that integration is. So that's, that's sort of your chief revenue officer, whatever you want to call them, uh, VP of marketing and sales. But they've got, they've got that sort of that machine point of view. The other end, the other end, the sales guys, right? The sales team or sales people, right? Um, and we always think of them. Why do we always think of them? I mean, again, there's a gender bias, right? Um, but, um, I'm, so I have this philosophy that, uh, I haven't been able to statistically prove, but, and that is that human beings are inherently salespeople that you think about, you think about the best salespeople you've ever come across in your life. And it's probably a six-year-old kid. <laughs> so six-year-old kids are unbelievably good salespeople. <laughs> I mean, they, they totally know your buttons, right? I mean, they, they are so insightful when it comes to kind of when to turn it on, when to turn it off, what buttons to push, how to convince you to change your behavior to do what they want you to do. <laughs> so, I mean, and what we do is then we stick them in school and we, you know, jam them into a desk and we tell them to shut up and listen. And we just, we just pound the sales instinct out of our children, right? We just crush whatever sales instinct any human being had with our educational systems. It's, it's unbelievable, right? So, but there are a few people who nevertheless, that cannot be suppressed. And you've come across them in your life, right? You've come across these sort of natural instinctive salespeople. And, and so, you know, my bias, and we've tried this in several of our companies, is you just hire raw, raw sales instinct, and then you train it. You don't try to hire experienced salespeople. You know, yeah, you probably have to hire a few experienced salespeople. <laughs> but, but what you really want to do is, and there are all sorts of, you know, good psychometrics around this instinct. 
um, of what makes a good salesperson, just in terms of sort of raw psychometrics. So bring in this raw talent and enthusiasm. You know, you know, again, you know, it's this person and, and I don't know where, I don't know your background, but, um, but, you know, most of us dread rejection. Most of us, you know, we can't imagine calling and calling and calling and being rejected and being rejected and being rejected. There are people out there who just have this natural energy around calling and reaching out and connecting and figuring out some way to get that person on the other end of the phone or the other end of the Zoom or the wherever they are, right? Um, the other end of the message or the email to, to respond um, in a positive way and an and, and authentic way. Um, and then you take, you, know, you take that mindset, that talent, that energy, and you, and you, you train it in terms of, of helping them be even more effective and more successful. Mm-hmm. And you give them the right tools. Um, and you start, you know, and again, different businesses, whatever, but you start on the inside. You figure, you know, you start on the inside. You make sure that they appreciate marketing and sales end to end, you know, from the messaging and the communications end, you know, all the way through the pipeline, the conversion, you know, the qualification, the conversion, the onboarding, you know, that you just get them to appreciate the entire engine. And so you breed this team of talent inside your organization that is, you know, sort of aligned around this, you know, understanding your messaging and, and being, being the best ambassadors possible for your company and having the discipline to, you know, create value for customers by convincing them to, you know, sign up, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the, so that's my, you know, I'm, that's, I have seen it work in, in a number of companies where the focus has been bring in that raw energy and train it rather than try to recruit, you know, proven Rolodex ridden, you know, sort of, um, you know, uh, 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 sales guys, you know, cynical sales guys who, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, who will smile and nod and say, I've hit my quota every year for the last six years. Um, you know, I don't know, but um, I'm, so that's a little bit of a, uh, of a bias that I encourage, I encourage you to look, look into that um, bringing in raw talent, you, you have to have somebody who's got serious experience. You need at least that one person who has the serious experience and then fill in with, fill in with raw talent. Right. There's this snowball effect that can run within the company. It's not only, so the learning curve doesn't only apply to the whole scene, but it also, logically, it also applies to the company itself. The whole engine. Right. I think, exactly. I think we actually depleted the, the time for the, for the podcast today. <laughs> Ouch. I okay. Be, I would be actually really honored to continue with you. Uh, I think. Uh-huh. After the next Startup World Cup uh, and Summit in the Czech Republic, we will definitely uh, continue the conversation. And I am wondering right. how many unicorns can we count in 2021 mm. in the Czech Republic? I hope it will be more. Also, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Why not? 
I would like to give you a final word and I would like uh -huh. to have this as a positive note to our entrepreneurs. Is there yes. a thing that you do every day to make your day better? Because nowadays we're in the lockdown and it's hard to recharge yourself mentally and there mm -hmm. might be a little hack that Bill is doing every day in a sunny California that we <laughs> <laughs> is there something yes. formula? Uh, well and um, you know yeah i mean so um you know probably the most in you know the the most important thing that i get to do every day is is hug my wife so <laughs> that's you know i get you know i have that that great blessing um and then the other important thing that I do every day is, I won't show it, but I've got a rowing machine here right next to me. Um, and um, and uh, whatever, let's see if you can see it there. Right, there's, my, there's my rowing machine. So, um, and I, you know, I, I try, I, I, you know, a few times a day to do these, um, you know, two minute sprints um just to keep the blood going you know just uh you know get up and keep the blood going um and then uh you know when i can and if it's a nice day um i will also try to have a short lunch and then and then go out for a walk um and so i am very blessed that <laughs> i live in a place that uh is quite beautiful and um and i go for a walk and generally I uh, I will um, I'll use that as a way to catch up on my podcasts. So um, mm -hmm. so you know one of um, and you know hopefully I'll uh, I'll catch up on on your podcast, Vaklava, <laughs> and um, the other podcast I like to catch up on is um, my partner Guy Kawasaki. He has a podcast called Remarkable People. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just this delightful, inspiring um, podcast. He brings in all sorts of interesting characters, um, you know, from from Jane Goodall to Daniel Pink, um, you know, all, all over the map. Um, and you just hear, you know, sort of these interesting, accomplished people who are very humble, talking about kind of their life experiences. Um, and it's, it's a good way to level set in terms of appreciating how lucky we all are mm -hmm. that, you know, we have the opportunities that we have, um, you know, in, in spite of everything, we are all connected to the world. We all, you know, can now, you know, to some extent, this COVID thing has made it e easier to appreciate how we're connected to the world in the sense that, you know, one, we are all sort of having to cope with this. And two, thanks to Zoom, we, you know, it's just so, it's now commonplace for us to be connected across the ocean. It didn't take me a day and a half of flying to sit down with you and have this conversation. Yeah, so, you know, I, you know, and so I guess that gets to the third most important thing that I do, which is every day I count my blessings. Every day I, you know, I, I appreciate how lucky I am. So um, that's, you know, that's what I've been doing to get through all this. So, so I've been, how about you? What, what are you doing to cope? 
it makes sense. I am being hugged every day by my uh, little daughter. And uh, sometimes I'm being hugged by my dog. <laughs> yes. Close. <laughs> uh, heavy. Uh -huh. Exactly. This is one part. Counting one's blessings is mm -hmm. an extremely important thing. And I, and I believe that this situation is being referenced to a crisis, but I don't think this is a definition of a crisis. So, you know, yeah. it is actually one, one side is do not take what is written in the media, literally, you, you, you need to, you know, you need to critically think about the situation. Mm -hmm. And another thing where I agree with you is that we can actually enjoy what is enjoyable in your life even more now, because mm -hmm we have a time to focus on it. So we should do so because I believe that in no time the world will be back on track with the vaccine on its way and we'll be sitting in offices again. So so I think take this little break as a, yeah, as what it is. You know, use, it, use it wise, read, listen, enjoy, work out. So I am. Thank you very much for a pleasant conversation. Uh, yes, I'm really looking forward to having you in the next Startup World Cup and Summit in the Czech Republic in fall 2021 and sending things to sunny California. You have really beautiful view, pitted, <laughs> listeners could not see it, but the woods are just, you know, astonishing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, your inviting me to participate today. And I hope you found a few nuggets in there that will help entrepreneurs you know, make progress toward their future success. So best of luck to everyone everywhere. And, and certainly best of luck to you and your family and your, your beautiful little girl and your dog as well. <laughs> and so, um, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. So we will absolutely stay in touch. Okay. Okay. It was a All right. Good. All right. Take care. Okay. Guys, want to, you can listen to more of our podcast at www.swcsummit.com. Thank you and good. Bye.